Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, human capital. How do societies help people fulfill their potential? And how do you make sure the programs meant to help people grow, like education and job retraining, are actually working? Before the holidays, Alphaville's Alexandra Skaggs paid a visit to the University of Chicago to speak with economist James Heckman and talk about those questions. Heckman won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for a statistical method that made it easier to evaluate the impact of public policy. And in this conversation, they discussed two groundbreaking early childhood education programs that he studied. Now, a few terms to clarify before we get to the interview, especially for our overseas listeners, as these two studies in particular are U.S.-specific. One was called the Perry Preschool Project, and the other was the Abecedarian, or ABC, project. In the Perry Project, a group of 58 Michigan children from low-income families were selected to attend a high-quality preschool, starting as early as age three. And once a week, teachers visited the children's homes to help get parents involved in their kids' education. Now, in the ABC project, a group of 57 children in North Carolina were selected to go to a high-quality child care and education center for eight hours each day, and some of the children were as young as two months old when they started the program. Both projects followed up with the children into adulthood, some well into their 30s, to measure the results. And now just one final point to explain before we get started, and that's the concept of charter schools. And in the U.S., these are schools that receive government funding but operate independently from the government school system. And with all that sorted, let's get to Alex's conversation with Professor James Heckman. So I was thinking that, that maybe we could start off just talking about your background a little bit, okay. um, because, you know, you won the Nobel Prize um, and that was for helping introduce an equation that allowed for more rigorous evaluation of policy. Why that field? What encouraged that focus? Well, I mean, I think actually the question would go the other way around, that what happened was years ago when I was a graduate student at Princeton, I got deeply interested in issues related to education, human capital, and skill accumulation. And I've been working on those problems my whole life. And the econometric methods that you were just discussing were developed as part of a larger body of work on those questions of skill formation. So I think there's consistency. Labor supply, skill formation, the economics of the labor market, the economics of the household. That's been an enduring interest of mine. And of course, here at Chicago, there's a tremendous amount of work, a lot of history and ongoing research. Yeah, and it's a bit more challenging to sort of quantify, right, compared to other types of economic um, evaluation, like, say, output, you know, if you're sort of measuring the more concrete topics. Well, yes and no. I mean, there mm -hmm. is a concrete counterpart to education and work experience and skills. It's called earnings. So if you look at what are the determinants of earnings, 
One of the major determinants of earnings is, of course, education and also work experience, qualifications. And as we've learned, more and more different skills above and beyond what we normally capture by education. So, I mean, most people get staggered when they realize that at most about 3%, 2 to 3% of lifetime variability in earnings is explained by measures of IQ and cognitive ability. Education explains far more. And education, we know now, has a strong causal effect. So that's been part of the whole literature, the evolution. Before, people noticed an association, a correlation. And then as the field developed, people started trying to de understand more deeply what the correlation was about. And so we are actually already you know, looking at not only education, the determinants of education, and then the other factors that determine earnings. So what are some of those other factors that are, say, part of education, part of uh, general human development that, that explains some of the variability? Well, I mean, some of it's intuitively obvious. I mean, when we think about it, uh, we ask, uh, who are the people who succeed? And uh, inevitably, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is going back to uh, the stories about the tortoise and the hare and stories in mythology. And it's not just Western mythology. It's stories... And oh, sorry. So, so Aesop's fables, I don't know the date of that, but that's sometime before the birth of Christ, many hundreds of years, I suspect. But, you know, in other civilizations, you have exactly the same principles, namely personality traits, traits we think of, I would call them skills, not traits. That's a big issue now. And it's a big issue that some of these things we used to think of as inherited or as trait-like, invariable are not. They can be affected, and they can be beneficially affected and negatively affected as well. So we've come to understand the power of personality. We've come to understand the power of a whole set of traits, and depending on the situation. See, part of the other aspect of this is that the view of the market and of society now is much richer than it might have been, say, half a century ago. And I, I say that because we think about all of the different tasks that people face, and they do different tasks. People work at different, they have what is a basic idea in economics going back to Ricardo, comparative advantage in the labor market, comparative advantage in society. So some skills are more productive in some areas than others. Some are more easily able to, you know, somebody can, Usain Bolt can run the 100-yard dash very quickly. And uh, I would I would think uh, that some uh, tackles on football teams, American football teams, would not, but they'd be able to block and so forth and so on. So uh, as we go across, you know, we just have come to recognize the variety of skills, the variety of things that are ingredients in success, and understanding that the environments themselves require different tasks, skills for those tasks. They just pose different challenges. So there's heterogeneity mm -hmm. among people. That's probably the single biggest finding is that there's heterogeneity. People are very different. And they're even at the beginning of life, they're very different. And some of those differences are accentuated as they go through life. Most of them are, many of them are. And people are always exploring about what's their comparative advantage, what are they good at. They do this instinctually, they do it through experience, they in schools and in workplaces and so forth. We're always trying, finding out about ourselves.
But in the selection process, in the, you know, beyond just self-selection, like when people are trying to figure out what it is they want to do or, or things that they might excel at. Right. The sort of like raw stuff, like the people like to talk about grit in education circles right. and people like to talk about other sorts of non-cognitive abilities. Conscientiousness the, and grit are exactly. identical. Actually, yeah. But yeah. Uh, so, but, so people have been the challenge of I mean, measuring that is a little bit tougher, say, than you know measuring how many widgets a person can produce versus another person, right? Or I don't think so. One of the interesting challenges, one of the frontiers in this whole area, is using um, what are sometimes called game-based assessments, and assessments that come not only by the usual kind of paper and pencil test, but by putting people in situations and observing what they do. So, for example, in terms of conscientiousness or grit, it's pointing out that these points that are so basic that we really do know intuitively to be true are, in fact, very important. So how do we find out? How do we measure those traits? Well, we can see how people persevere in tasks. That's part of what a personnel manager does. That's part of what a teacher does. I mean, when you see a student uh, persevering through a difficulty, say, a person maybe doesn't understand algebra or has difficulty with uh, French, let's say, or some some difficulty, and you see that person consistently trying and then persevering maybe in the face of failure. When you look at an inner city kid and ask the question, who shows up for class, especially when the kid has to walk through a neighborhood where there may be gangs, there may actually be, I think those are pretty good indicators of grit. And you ask even something within a classroom setting, something we're doing now with the Chicago public schools, attendance. I mean, literally attendance in environments where attendance is not generally promoted by the surrounding environment is a measure of grit or at least of conscientiousness. So you can see how people are. So I I don't know quite what you're looking for. You're looking for a measure of precision. Output isn't so easy. Think about output. I mean, what is the output of a desk worker? I mean, this is one of the big questions now. What's the output even of a computer? People are, you know, still debating over whether or not computers have raised productivity because a lot of the tasks that are being done by the computer are not that well measured. I mean, it's just things are much easier. You can't help but go into an office or any kind of any kind of environment where people are writing or disseminating information and recognize how powerful the computer is. Yet, the way that we traditionally measure productivity, it turns out to make it very hard. So I I think the challenge generally is to measure output of all types. Mm -hmm. And I would say conscientiousness is one input we can measure. Risk aversion, you can measure that. There are games and, and situations where I can elicit how risky you are. I can say, okay, look, I'm going to change the odds. I'm going to change the odds on this particular gamble. Will you still take the gamble? And at some point, people drop out. It's too risky. And you can find a point for that person, and then you can look at a distribution of those points. You say, well, if it gets too risky, I'm not going to gamble. But if it's a sure bet, everybody gambles because there's no gamble. And so you find that in many conscientiousness has that same kind of trait, like quality, that you can elicit in terms of performance on tasks, both real and hypothetical. You can look at how people gamble, real gambles, and look at how they gamble with with money and games and so forth. What what all of the talk about these challenges of measuring output of all kinds, like, like you say, what that sort of leads towards for me 
is policy implications. Like you, you've done a lot of work on education. You've done a lot of work um, measuring interventions, helping develop all of these skills to be productive yes. in many different ways. You know, that raises the question of, you know, what some of these skills like conscientiousness or even just, you know, cognitive ability where they come from? Like, are they taught? Are they innate? Um, you've actually done, uh, done a pretty interesting amount of work on this stuff and sort of what that implies for policy. Well, I'll give you an example how important it is for policy. I'll make a very simple example. And it goes back to a controversy that was very big in the United States about 40 years ago. It started a whole literature, which is still active. But the old book by Murray and Hernstein mm -hmm. about the bell curve right. is a manifestation of this. But that's not... It hasn't died and never will. But the belief in the 1960s that IQ and the whole notion of cognitive psychology, which was that cognition was the principal factor determining success in life, led to some serious misstatements and misunderstandings of public policy. The best example is this Head Start program that was actually started during the uh, War on Poverty by Lyndon Johnson and his uh, Office of Economic Opportunity. And how did people evaluate that program initially? Say, well, did it work or not? The way that all of that class of early childhood programs was evaluated was, did it boost IQ? And what happened consistently for those programs, not for all of those programs, the program starting at three and four, was that children who IQ was initially boosted, say, the first few years after they were in the program, by the time they were 10, maybe 12, their IQ and the group that had treatment compared to those that had only been in control and not had any treatment, there was no difference. And that's what led Arthur Jensen to write this inflammatory article, which actually many people still adhere to, certainly Murray does and others, that basically... There's a whole class of people who are just dumb. IQ is heritable. They're dumb. And there's nothing we can do about these disadvantaged people. <laughs> well, when I, I, that's how I got interested in this whole question about non-cognitive skills. I looked at programs like the Perry Preschool Program, ABC and programs, and we had measures, hard measures by your standard, dollar earnings, mm -hmm. employment. And we saw that 25, 30 years later, these people were earning more. They were benefiting more. Uh, they seemed to be less crime. And they were doing many things. So the question was, why? They weren't any smarter. And we could then, by a miracle of, uh, of, of competence and an accident, really, of the way the early pioneers conducted the study, they were very thorough. They collected evaluations by school teachers in the first grades of, of their students, that both the treatment and control children. And we could look at teacher-assessed measures of what you could talk about as conscientiousness, self-control, what's sometimes called extroversion or extroverting. So there are the various kinds of a, a aggressive behavior. And you could see tremendous differences even at five, six, seven years of age. In between these children. And then you look at what's called a mediation analysis. So going behind these treatment effects at 30 and 35. And what you found, what we found was that these social and emotional skills played a very powerful role. And so that's the sense in which 
people were literally looking under the wrong streetlight. We were so fixated with cognition, and we still are in a lot of areas. Look at PISA scores. You realize now, I'm saying part of a team doing this. Now, OECD awarded a grant to the Educational Testing Service, a group of us, I'm part of the consortium, precisely to come up with measures of social and emotional skills. So I have a paper that I wrote for them a few years ago with Tim Coutts. What was happening was that everybody fixates on PISA. And you'll still see that, you know, ministers get everybody in China so happy, you know, and Shanghai has the highest uh, PISA scores, uh, despite all the angst that goes with that. But really now, even OECD sees the benefit of, re- of measuring those and is going to at least supplement what we think of now with the PISA score. By the way, the PISA scores are not measures of straight IQ either. They're measures of knowledge. And it turned out that even though these Perry kids had no higher IQs, they did have higher scores on PISA-like tests. And it was simply because they were trying harder. They were more motivated. So no smarter, but more motivated. These kids just took advantage of everything offered to them downstream, starting from age five when they left the program. So it's that kind of discovery. So you look at the effects. You say, here's something that happened. If it's not IQ, what is it? It's almost like an elimination argument. by, But it wasn't health. There were some other factors. It wasn't like these kids were particularly more healthy, although there were some health effects. And you could actually look at the various mediators. But the teachers had these assessments. This is back in the 1960s. Look, I don't know when it started. I would bet in the, in the 19th century that elementary schools and high schools were always giving grades for deportment. And those are grades essentially for non-cognitive skills, right. how well the kid behaved, how, except it became viewed as very discriminatory and with the so-called revelations of cognitive psychology uh, irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And of course, now we now know it's not. Yeah. And so one of the one of the interventions that you talked about just there, the yes. ABC program, yes. you know, I just read one of your papers about the long term effects of that. And yes. I found it really fascinating um, because, like you said, the teachers did sort of measure these characteristics or personality traits. So following up with the people who received the interventions, did that provide any challenges for you guys or just? Oh, for sure. I mean, okay. there's, a, there's a very basic empirical mm-hmm. challenge, which is you intervene with a family. And these were kids now, the ABC kids were eight weeks old when they started their program. And now they're in their mid-40s. And can you describe the program a little bit? Oh, sure. It's a very intensive program. But the program, as I say, started at eight weeks of age. It was targeted towards disadvantaged kids, not exclusively African-American, but predominantly, all in one city uh, in the Chapel Hill, Raleigh-Durham area, North Carolina. Uh, but there's still poverty there. What it did is it brought the kids in for eight hours a day for the first five years of the lives of the children. And what did it do? Well, in the morning, it taught them how to they play together. They would undertake different tasks. I mean, by different tasks, I mean they would look at letters. They would do painting. They would do the kinds of things we associate with early years. And, and basically, they'd also learn to play with each other. And they would also be doing what we could call counterfactual exercises, you know, structured and unstructured play, where they say, you know, I'm going to be the Queen of England, or I'm going to be 
you know, the emperor of the universe. And that kind of play turns out to be very, very productive for people thinking. It lets them think and even anticipate situations, even though they appear to be, some of them are impossible, features of them are not. This is what they do in war games, right? Mm -hmm. They think about, you know, what happens if North Korea does this. But more concretely in the in the classroom, giving those kids those challenges. So it's both it's both cognitive challenges and then non-cognitive working mm-hmm. together. So learning how to sort of reconcile differences, getting along with each other, very intensive activity initially. When you're dealing with an eight week old child, you're getting teacher pupil ratios that are closer to almost one to one, maybe uh two to one or three to one. It's higher as you get older, as the kids become less uh, needy in some sense, and they they become a little more stable in terms of their personalities. You know, in the first year or so of a child's life, certainly the first three months, the difference between the child sees the world is is that child's mother or the surrogate mother. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they call that uh, period the fourth trimester, precisely. But they were in the fourth trimester, and they were actually giving the kids cognitive stimulation. They were encouraging them. And another part of it, they were also talking to the parents, not visiting them, but literally when the parents would bring in. And yet another aspect, so remember, eight hours a day. In the afternoons, they would be more like unstructured or structured play. They'd go out to the sandbox play. So it had a child care component as well. And what it meant was that the mothers could work. It was predominantly mothers, predominantly female-headed households. And those mothers actually were able to work. So you saw earnings gains for the mothers and sometimes gains in education the, for mothers who had dropped out of school and so mm-hmm. forth. So it was really working on both generations. So you saw that it helped the mother and it helped the kid. And the results were really stunning. Looking at your paper, talking about just sort of the wage gains for kids, you know, 18 years in the future, you know, after they've been cared for these eight hours a day as eight-week-olds. See, in in public discussions of these programs, there is a lot of talk. I'm an economist, but any good economic principle is looking at what's called the rate of return. It's the benefit over the cost. And you can annualize that to a rate of return. Well, we computed the rate of return, and we we respected every piece of economics. So we said, suppose it's publicly provided. We know that taxation can distort the economy. That's the premise of the latest tax cut, trying to reduce taxation. Well, independently of the latest tax cut, there have been estimates by people like Martin Feldstein and many others suggesting a big distortion in government from from raising taxes. We incorporate that. We incorporate, say, suppose this is all publicly funded and it causes this distortion. If you go out and still look at the present value of the gains, gains including things like reduced crime, reduced incarceration costs, criminal justice system costs, increase in earnings into the economy, also things like uh, promoting health, all of those features, when you put them together, showing a very, very high rate of return, around 14% per annum, which is a very high rate of return by almost any measure, 
of public sector investment. Right. And looking at that rate of return, that that does also sort of depend on following up with the kids later on, right? Yes, you know, correct. around 30, you guys actually followed it out to 30, which, which set 35, your research 30, apart. 35, the health measures mm-hmm. were taken to 35. Okay. And we have now out in the field or about to launch in the field, a follow up to age 45. No kidding. So again, the notion yeah. is to go forward. And with the Perry children, now we recently have analyzed and We've put together, we have followed the children until they're 55. So we even have the data on the children of the children. Oh, wow. So we can look at three generation mm-hmm. effects on the mother, on the treatment of the child treated, and then on the children of the people treated. And we find significant intergenerational effects. So the point is, it's, it's, it's not the money spent. It's the return relative to the money spent. And so the rates of return are very high. And that's a relevant measure, really irrelevant. It's a tough, that's a hardcore measure. And in public policy discussion, unfortunately, in the U.S. now, evidence is probably less used than it was. But I've certainly given presentations, discussions about this work to what I would call nonpartisan groups, both Republicans and Democrats, looking, just trying to find the evidence, the facts and saying, how does this public policy compete with other public policies? And, of course, the other question is, how can you engage the private sector? Because there's a big private sector and a, and a private sector challenge for child care and high-quality child care. So the structure of the uh, understanding the relationship between the society, families, and social problems, I think, is very difficult for many people, partly because it's politically unacceptable, for many people, they will say you're blaming the victim and so forth and so on. Instead of looking at the hard facts about how many American families are challenged. And the other hard fact that supplementing the family has beneficial effects. So it's it's yeah. not a question of talking down to people. It's really a question of working with them and supplementing. Mm-hmm. But the family is challenged. The fact is the family has changed. The challenge for Mothering has changed, and this is really policy that's focusing on recognizing the value of mothering and then recognizing when mothering is absent that there are consequences and that you can do something about those. Right. And that raises the question, actually, as long as we're talking about the sort of uh, political challenges of some of the research you've done about gender differences in early childhood interventions. And I found that really fascinating because, as it turns out, uh, the gender of the child helps determine sort of the way that they respond to different types of interventions. Well, see, what's interesting, and this is there's a big literature on this. There's a person named Alan Shore. He's a psychiatrist at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's done a lot of work on the family. He's done a lot of work. But more recently, he's conducted uh, some conferences, and one conference in particular in New Mexico, looking specifically at gender differences. And the fact of the matter is, is that boys, young boys, are much more vulnerable, much less resilient than young girls. We know, as a group now, young girls typically can read or they're ahead of the boys at intellectual development. Not every boy is behind. Not every girl is ahead. But the, and if you look at incidence of diseases like autism, and you look at various kinds of behavioral difficulties, uh, and you couple that with the work by, uh, she's a psychologist at, the, at Duke University. What she showed years ago, and she's reaffirmed it in recent studies, 
is that the emergence of what we think of as criminality, you know, very highly aggressive behavior associated with crime, predictors at ages three and four. And of course, it's much more of a male phenomenon than a female phenomenon. Women are simply not committing the violence. They just aren't. And, you know, people talk about, there's a psychologist, Sapolsky wrote this book called The Trouble with Testosterone. Many people have talked about it, but it's true that, in fact, aggression is predominantly a male phenomenon. But what we did discover, in addition to that, that's all old news, was that when you looked at inadequate child care programs, so you look at a mediocre child care program, you find that the girls are more resilient. They simply aren't harmed. The boys are. And the, the attachment to the mother is more important. They're more vulnerable. They tend to be more needy. And that's been documented by psychologists. And what we did is we looked at the economic counterpart of that. There's some earlier work, too, in um, in Canada that has been done that suggested this. And in fact, it's been used in a, in a very uncritical way, saying, well, kids who went to early, to daycare early on were much more aggressive and had certain kinds of issues with non-con. Well, it turns out, if you look closely, it wasn't just the kids, it was the boys. And then if you look at the quality of the daycare, you realize it was fairly low quality. So the girls were resistant, or at least resilient. They weren't harmed. The boys seemed to have been actively harmed, just literally were much less, it seemed to be acting out, uh, becoming much more aggressive. Uh, and there were long-term consequences of that mm-hmm. of that kind of uh, program. So I think that's important. And again, people don't want to talk about these differences. But I mean, to me, the more we understand these differences, the better we'll be. Right. And part of that factors into, you know, the types of crimes that are more often committed by men, right? Like yes. you mentioned in your paper that the the types of crime that are most costly to society are violent crimes, <coughs> and violent right. crimes are, for the most part, carried out by men. It's not only loss of life, it's mm-hmm. also incarceration and right. so forth. Bank robberies, rape, various kinds of um, serious crime. That's Women are committing crimes in our study. Plenty of, mm-hmm. but it's very minor crimes. More like theft, petty theft, uh, things that are are really not costly in any sense to society. So, how how much of a challenge did the did the sort of incarceration aspect pose to you when you were following up with the kids from the studies? Well, it's interesting. We we just finished the uh, analysis. Of, we just the collection of the data on the Perry preschool children. Now, a fair number of them, both treatment and control, are in prison. The challenge is not finding them because they're in prison. We know where they are. The challenge is getting the prisons to allow us to interview them and to give them physical screenings. You know, we're giving them at age 55 health checkups. So we got compliance, at least for the interviews associated with, uh, uh, you know, psychological interviews. But we couldn't take in the health screening measures. So we're missing... For some reason, the prison did not want, maybe just because the equipment itself might be in drugs. Might, I wasn't sure what the logic was. The Perry people were primarily located in Michigan prisons. And I don't know, maybe they've had some special experience. But we couldn't take the medical exams. Other than that, we got basically 100% cooperation. We follow these people. Now, some people die. So there is a follow-up. That's also interesting. It turns out the control group is dying at a higher rate than the treatment. Uh, some people uh, initially were enrolled 
and then the parents took them out of it. That's that's a real compromise to randomization. But it's a compromise that we've addressed statistically. It raises an intellectual challenge, taking us back to the, the Nobel Prize and the kind of technical work. We've addressed it, and we still find substantial results. And so I think what's interesting is that not only it's a challenge. I mean, it's a measurement challenge. We're learning about the skills. It's a it's an intellectual challenge in the sense of not only interpreting the data, but looking at uh, the statistics and how to measure this properly and to come up with proper causal statements. So I think the challenge is putting all these pieces together. But it's fascinating, too, because you're looking at how people change and how lives can be affected in a, in a beneficial way. Right. And all of these, uh, like you said, uh, potentially even simple interventions uh, yes. raise a question for me, which is, if you think about the amount of dialogue that's happening right now e across the United States, even globally, about policy, there's a whole lot being said about trade. Uh, there's a whole lot being said about, you know, manufacturing and sort of where did the factories go? Is it globalization or technology, technology that's right. uh, responsible for for all of this sort of productivity lagging? Why is there not more discussion of human capital development in the United States? Well, I, that's a very good question. And I think, well, everybody favors education. And I think the focus, at least in this administration, has been on charter schools and in trying to improve the educational system as it is. And there's no question, by the way, that there are some ways to improve. There's a recent study here at the University of Chicago, actually. There's a sociologist who's now head of, I think, the Carnegie Endowment, named Tony Bright. Bright is a very innovative guy, very persistent guy, high level of grit or conscientiousness. He initially tried to see how he could improve his Chicago public schools. He got the cooperation of Chicago. He tried for years a variety of different interventions. He failed year after year to see any kind of major change. After 25 years, or say 20 years of failure, they slowly evolved into a strategy, which the University of Chicago is part of. They actually created a charter school supported by the University of Chicago. And what were the ingredients? And again, the charter school had to experiment. When did they start reaching the children in these charter schools? When the kids were four? When the kids were still young? Before kindergarten. What was the other feature? that they did with the kids. They made sure they did not accept excuses. They mentored the kids. So what they did is they provided this parenting, this kind of encouragement that I think is the supplement to successful interventions, either through the mother or the family doing this or through the childcare center. Staying with the kid, mentoring the kid. I think that's that, again, is commonsensical, but I think we're starting to get data on showing how important. This is also true, by the way, in job training. And when you get a 17-year-old and you teach the kid to fix an engine and then throw the kid out in the job market, you don't really get a great deal of success. On the other hand, if you mentor the child and spend the time. Well, anyway, coming back to the Chicago Charter School, what they found was that if they were willing to spend the money, and it's intensive, on, on mentoring, staying with the kid, taking the kid to the next step, they could get real benefits. But traditional job training had, again, this cognitive focus. I'm going to teach you to do this. You're going to get that skill, that skill you take to the market. Not understanding the kid didn't know what the market was. The kid didn't know 
how to show up on time. You know, the old Woody Allen joke about showing up on time is what, what did he say was 80% of success? <laughs> I, I think something like that. But I think these are things that sound commonplace, but they're not so commonplace. And they actually are effective. And so there are a variety of mentoring. We're following kids. There's a program here in Chicago that Tim Couts and others have worked on. And it's, it's called One Goal. And what it's doing is taking kids. This is not the University of Chicago, but it's a group here in Chicago working in Chicago. But what do they do? They take kids who are in the middle, kind of middle level inner city schools. They're not the worst. They're not the best. No charter school in the list. What they do is they take kids in about the 10th grade and they basically start mentoring them and they follow them on into college if they go to college. And they're finding, at least in the initial effects, the first few years into college, the kids are doing rather well. They're not dropping out. They are. So it's again, I think, the big question is the is is the changing family structure, the changing structure for children. I don't want to just blame families, but it's the mentor. So that's why I would say parenting, mentoring, to me, that's the universal ingredient. See, the trouble with academics, and I'm one. Trouble with people get get very. They kind of lose sight of some basic, very basic things. I think from day one, I don't know when it started. I can imagine when primates were grooming in Africa maybe 200,000 years ago, the, the primates that actually stayed with their primate offspring and groomed them and kind of shaped them and gave them a good start you know, on the, uh, on the, uh, the jungle or the, the veld or wherever they were, were the primates that succeeded. And I think that kind of stimulation, that kind of mentoring is really important. And it's especially important for humans. I mean, we have a very slow trajectory. We're not like uh, deer that they are jump out and know instinctually how to proceed. We actually uh, have to be trained. We're very slow in reaching maturation. And it's precisely that encouragement. But it's missing. It's missing. And see, this is where there really is a hot button issue. You know, there's a new book about uh, by a uh, woman who is a psychiatrist in New York. But she points out, I think correctly, biologically correctly, at least with our current understanding, the first few years are really, really important for the child. And if the child is missing attachment to the mother, that surrogates don't do as well. Mm -hmm. And especially if the surrogates are low quality. What she's emphasized is a role. Now, you know, she's not saying that women shouldn't work or there shouldn't be parenting. But, you know, issues like breastfeeding, there's a lot of biological evidence. Increasingly, mm -hmm. you work on the microbiome, showing how important. It's not just the calories. It's literally the kind of material that activates the microbiome to actually metabolize and process food. It's these kinds of processes where the science keeps working in the same direction. So, and again, I don't want to endorse the book or, you know, every right. finding, but I think the body of evidence, I mean, if you look at, we had a conference here in Chicago a couple of months ago and a whole new center now studying the microbiome. It's fascinating. It's an area of great development. But one thing that came out, though, very loud and clear was the importance of breastfeeding hmm. and its importance in stimulating the microbiome huh. of the children to actually create an environment that was very productive for growth. I mean, these are, you know, these the children they're dealing with here at the University of Chicago, 
a group in Alberta. No, in Saskatchewan. Oh, no, Manitoba. Anyway, I got the provinces confused. <laughs> but they they actually, a lot of hard evidence showing how the microbiome was affected by the breastfeeding. And the breastfeeding itself is a time-intensive activity. And apparently, and this is where I'm really venturing off of solid ground, but it's not just the breast milk. It's also the the sheer act of, you know, baby nursing the child, staying with the child, mothering the child. Mm -hmm. There's some backup from neuroscience for similar types of ideas, right? Like the amount of words a child hears before three oh, years sure. of age has really strong correlation to their success later in life. It, you know, it just it seems like, you know, early, early childhood, you know, fourth trimester, as you say, it shows a great amount of, I guess, return to the person's human capital. As it they... does. It does. But you see, part of it, you realize that this is not a new idea. Back in the, in the LBJ day, you know that Nixon, there was an idea of early childhood education, very modern sounding uh, compared, uh, if you look at what's currently being proposed by Senator, then Senator Mondale. And it actually passed the Congress. This mm. was like in the late 60s. I think it was probably a democratically controlled Congress uh, in uh, both the House and Senate. And Nixon vetoed it. And the reason he vetoed it, I think, is important to understand. I think it's a very important reason today. Even. He vetoed it because he said government should not be intruding in the life of the family. Mm. You know, And people really are very negative about the idea of sort of taking kids away. We know. That's a bad idea. Plato thought that was a great idea. We tried it with indigenous people. Uh, the Australians tried it. The Canadians tried it. It led to horrendous consequences. So the, the mother, the family has to be engaged. But the fact is the family is also challenged. So it's not a question of replacing the family. It's building it up. But see, that starts to sound very paternalistic. So you see, it's interesting. It is and it isn't. So if you go to places like Nebraska and Kansas and Oklahoma, You'll find a lot of public support, chambers of commerce, for early childhood education. Why? Because they see it as promoting family values. They also see the value, they see the economic rate of return, and there is a sense that it does, does feed into a conservative ethos. But the fact of the matter is, if you put it in a way that says, oh, you know, you're going to bring, uh, you're going to bring teachers, you're going to replace the mother, you're going to start telling parents how to raise their kid. That becomes a pretty negative image inside American society. We don't. So it's really partly a matter of the way it's approached. But I think it's also the case that recognizing that the family is challenged is a very politically sensitive thing. You'll notice that that in the latest tax bill, the child care credit debate that Ivanka Trump was talking about this at a Republican mm -hmm. convention last summer of 2016. Uh, she didn't go quite go far enough, but Adding the quality dimension is not that far. So you say, okay, high quality childcare. Many women are working. Just make sure that the kids aren't hurt by this. You don't want to just dump them into some center. You and a lot of low quality centers. Childcare is very, very costly. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever priced it out, but like for a high school dropout mother, and you ask what is the fraction of her income that she would spend on childcare, it's somewhere between thirty and forty percent. Wow. So it becomes, it doesn't pay to actually have, if you have a couple of kids, three kids in, in particular, you're off the, you know, you might as well not work. Mm -hmm. Stay at home and raise the kid. So I think what's happened though with single parent families is the mother really does have to work. 
She is the prime, and even now with the declining real wages and manufacturing and so forth, a lot of the traditional male jobs aren't getting the income. So women are working. The economic forces are there. So the question is trying to build a case that recognizes these trends. And I think people do recognize childcare as an issue. At least it's partially on the agenda. But I think it could go forward. If there was one sort of uh, federal level, you know, easily implemented policy um, besides the the child's independent tax care credit, what what would it be? Well, I wouldn't necessarily be a federal policy as much, maybe through the tax system, maybe through incentives. I think what you want to try to do, what, what, what successful government would do, and to avoid the costs, is to try to mobilize the private sector and the public sector. And, I mean, again, this sounds very prosaic for an academic to say, but to really let people understand the nature of the problem. So that sounds like an information campaign, but it's not a trivial information campaign. Now, when I say the nature of the problem, understanding the family, understanding how the family can help or hurt. Many people intuitively see that, but they don't act on it in terms of public policy. And so your, your question is kind of focusing somewhat on just government side interventions. The private market, with given the right incentives, can provide these services. But it should also recognize public policy that just a lot of women are challenged. And so there really is an issue. So this is where now talking about feminist agendas, a lot of women, the women's organization, would strongly support child care. There is an economic argument for supporting child care. And the economic argument is the same argument for why we want might want to provide employment subsidies rather than welfare for unemployed men. Namely, if you can get the mother to work, as opposed to, say, go on welfare, she can gain work experience. She's integrated into society. And if it's high-quality child care, at least based on our study, there are beneficial effects for the child and actually the children of the children. So that's, that's partly an education campaign. I would bet that most senators, even a lot of the child care advocates, wouldn't even quite understand that because they don't know any economics as a group. You know, most of the case that's being made is what's fair and people are talking or making very dramatic statements about, you know, children suffering and so forth. But there really is an economic case. I mean, it's you can have, make those other arguments. This case is really one where I don't think the the evidence has been looked at far enough or it's been dismissed. See, what's interesting, if you look at the advocates out there and you look at all of the different policies, a lot of these groups that are conducting the same studies are selling these mm-hmm. as commercial products. That leads to a certain amount of disbelief, you know, about this, this person is, you know, for that matter, Perry Preschool has a has a version. They sell their product. It actually it turns out to be a slightly different product. It changed a lot, actually, from the group that we studied. But the structure of the uh, of of the group is they're very argumentative. I mean, most scholars are. I mean, it makes them scholars. They always are contesting things. But it also means that a lot of the advocacy that's out there, I think, is uncritical. And I think it's even potentially harmful because people are coming up with slogans and pushing particular lines without trying to distill to the common core what really is responsible. And I can't help 
I mean, just well, you say that mothers matter or mentors matter. I mean, who's going <laughs> to? That's so obvious that you don't need any PhDs or any. But on the other hand, it's not part of the discussion. Um, and it sounds, and you know, people like it, dislike. So you ask, what public policy? I would say policies that would promote, subsidize, in one way or another, or recognize the cost, internalize the cost. Crime is a real cost to society. And so economists talk about externalities. So what's the case for subsidizing education or subsidizing early education? It's partly the case for subsidizing education. This helps promote education. Education has benefits well and beyond those earnings that are collected by the individual. All kinds, social participation. Same thing is true in terms of crime, that you're going to reduce crime. So there is a case, an economic case for subsidy, but the subsidy would be for disadvantaged children. See, right. that's the other part of it. Mm -hmm. This is a case where, and that's something that for many people is just off the table. Hmm. Universality, you know, de Blasio, right. Rahm Emanuel, every politician I know always talks about universality. Now, the smart politicians say, yeah, universal, but with a sliding fee schedule. So that you, but look, you go to, a, to an upper class neighborhood here in Chicago, uh, our wealthy neighborhood. The kind of childcare that the child's getting, even if the mother works full time, is going to be much higher than anything you're going to get from a public program. So they'll opt out. So the fact of the matter is, if you maybe it's fine, just say okay, it's universal, but with an opt out, and there's no mandate to necessarily take it, and that kind of program could be effective. But recognizing too, and this is where governments really fail, that quality of this kind of getting interaction really matters a lot. So again, very academic saying, you know, educating people is important, but I think making people aware of some of these basic facts. And some of the measurement of, of again, these sort of socio-emotional skills, as they call them, yes, um, and the improvements. There's still questions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've asked a lot of people, I didn't ask you the trick question, I should have, but I've stood in front of audiences, a few audiences over the last few years, just recently in Israel, and there were some members of the parliament there, the Knesset, sitting there, asking, what fraction of the earnings variation is due to IQ? Just what would you explain? And the kind of standard answer, I guess, 25% to 50%. Most people say IQ is really important. And when they find out that it's 2 to 3%, they're somewhat shocked. And these are, many of these are educated people. They're also educators themselves, not working in this field. So I think there's a level still of awareness that needs to be explored. I think at an intuitive level, though, that it's so obvious. That's the point. So you tell, you tell people to succeed, you have to persevere. And we've seen all these studies of athletes or great pianists or NASA uh, pilots or just about anything where people practice their trade they become proficient at it, and they succeed. I mean, there's this guy, Erickson, I think, who claims after 10,000 hours, you can be the master of any... I, I don't know about that, but I do know. I'm, I'm confident 10,000 hours later, I would not be a great violinist, but uh, that's a side issue. The fact is, I'd be a better violinist if I put in a few thousand hours. Uh, I'm not a violinist at all. But, but what I'm suggesting, though, is that some of these points are so obvious. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think it's, to be honest, and I shouldn't blame it, I think part of this 
is because of the academic and policy discussion. It's so stylized and it's so written with uh, banalities that have become widely accepted. People mm. just, they accept that this is true or that's true. Uh, like PISA scores are, are the be all and end all. Try to convince Angela Merkel or, or the premier of China that PISA scores aren't a good measure of a school system. There are many of my fellow economists who are still writing papers saying, look, the, the you know, there's a guy at Stanford, Eric Hanischek, a friend of mine, but he's writing these papers showing, you know, IQ, really PISA scores are a measure that determine which nations succeed and which ones fail. And it's just so bold. It's an empirical relationship gone wild. And it's just not so important. In the policy discussion today, you'll still hear a lot. The code word is evidence-based policy. Mm -hmm. What it means, I mean, to me, it's a slogan for a particular methodology, which means unless you run a randomized controlled trial, there is no evidence. You do not allow the evidence in the door. Mm -hmm. And so Galileo dropping the weight off the Tower of Pisa, Einstein's, you know, relativity theory and uh, smoking and health, all of those would be ruled out by that mm. mentality. But that is the standard, in fact, imposed by government, many government agencies now and by many different education schools and other schools as well. They're economists. And so the point is, is what that means is that some of these common sense arguments, some of these studies about looking at mothering, the studies that you mentioned about 30, you know, those 30 million words or those gaps in words that were originally, you know, done in this study in Kansas, Hart and Risley, 20 years ago. People are still living off of that study. That wasn't an experiment. It's just simply saying that poor families, maybe because they're not that articulate themselves, aren't talking that much, and the kids don't hear so many words, and five years later, they don't have the same vocabularies. It's been re reproduced, but none of it's experimental. But my God, you say, okay, it's not truly causal. There are a lot of things going on in those families. But there are others who come along and take some of these relationships so literally saying, well, poor people have these conditions. So what should the answer be? Give them money. That doesn't follow either. Hmm. I mean, literally, it's money and parenting are two different issues. There are a lot of middle class and upper middle class families that are completely dysfunctional. <laughs> and so the point, though, is that... Uh, so you're talking to one person. I right. give you other people. But I think there are some universals. And we see at least the ingredients of the universals across a bunch of studies. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing consistently when we change parenting, every intervention that I've ever studied that's been successful has shown a marked difference between the way the parents were approaching the children of the treated versus the control. Right. So it's sort of finding an academic framework for a common sense idea. It, it's it's putting, right. well, but you see, you're asking a lot for public mm -hmm. policy in the United right. States to think now. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, in Israel, they're debating this. I think maybe, I don't know how successfully they've done. Chile, you know, until, and I don't know if the recent new president will follow this, but Bachelet was, of course, a pediatrician herself. And she, she promoted the Chileans have very, very, rich and uh, active childcare policies. So when I talk about evidence-based policy, let me be very clear. I'm not saying experiments don't provide knowledge. 
But I think there's a lot of other sources of mm-hmm. knowledge. And I think some of it's common sense. Some of it may be reading the, the history of your tribe or your whatever. And I think some of it, it really consists of these observations and observational data that isn't experimental, but nonetheless points in the same direction. The way that real science proceeds is what the way, using the term of E.O. Wilson, is finding consilience across studies. Right. right. Finding similar patterns, not saying one methodology is privileged. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in the early childhood literature and a lot of the education studies, that has become the be-all and end-all. And so it rules out whole ways to approach knowledge. Right. Uh, that's a very abs- already an abstract idea that you know we shouldn't uncritically rely. But I heard, for example, in one of the debates in the Senate, C-SPAN, I think about a, about a year ago now, one of the senators, I don't even remember his name, not so important, was talking about funding. There was one program that was going to be killed. It had a feature for funding a particular program. And his defense of not killing that program was basically, now, see, it's evidence-based, and that's all that I trust. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't trust it, but I'm also saying there's other ways to get evidence, and I think that's that's maybe too subtle. I don't think Trump will be discussing RCTs versus, uh, versus exper- non-experimental data. And that's the end of Alex's conversation with Professor James Heckman. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think. You can send us an email at alphachat at ft.com. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Not only does it help people find out about us, it also helps us improve each episode week to week. Special thanks to Bill Healy this week for recording Alex's interview in Chicago. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. 
Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.